Welcome to the National Community Church Podcast. We're thrilled to be able to share this weekend's message with you. You can find us on national.cc or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Let's go ahead and give a hand clap to Jesus because he's so amazing. Come on. Yeah, you made it through the week, right? You're here in church. Come on, let's give him a big applause. Thank you, Lord. So grateful. So grateful. Well, I think that we should give honor to where honor's due. You know, Dennis and I have uh, been in ministry for a long time. (laughs) And it's such an honor to be here this morning with you. And you are now our family. I mean, you always were a family, but you're even more our family. Because of this transition and merger, um, I guess we just call it becoming one church. But I want to give honor to Mark and Laura and to the team that's here because you have extraordinary pastors. Come on, let's give them a hand. Extraordinary. If you're online, you can go ahead and put in the comments, thank you, Jesus, for my pastors. Because not only are they smart, brilliant, anointed, they love Jesus, they love you, but there's a humility that they carry and a kindness that they carry that is very rare. And Dennis and I have traveled a lot, and I I would just say that what is on this house is a mercy and a grace that is very rare and a treasure. And I just think that, you know, sometimes what we sit in, we can become over-familiar with. And I don't want you to become over-familiar with the gifts that God has given you. So one more time, let's give them a huge hand because of the grace that God's given us through them and through the team. And so it's so great to be here today. I want to just give you a little bit of background. This is who we are. We've been married 40-some years. I say 40-some because I can't remember the exact number. 43? Yes. Here's our family. I'm just going to briefly go through who everybody is. On the, um, oh, wait. Go back to the family. Those are, those are the favorites. Um, but right here is uh, Alex and Bethany. Bethany's here with Olivia today. And uh, they are our favorite children. They know this. It's because they have our grandchildren, so they know that. Then there's me, and then there's Gabby and Colby, who just recently got married a year ago. There's my hot husband, 43 years. We are still in love, more in love than ever. And then on the very end is Evan, who is now part of the team here at NCC. And next to him is our um, single daughter, Jessica. So if you're interested... If you're a mother and you have a son, as long as he's not in your basement, come see us after the service. And that's our family. And then the next picture is our very favorite. I know, right? They're the best. And then the next picture is Olivia from the wedding, just because, right? This is the age where cellulite is cute. Now, I know I look amazing this morning. I know, I know I look amazing. But underneath all of my clothes is one slab of cellulite. And just to prove it to you, I'm going to post a picture of it. Just kidding. I would never do that. And I'm not going to do that because I don't want you to see that side of me. Now, I'm not saying don't wear, like, who cares? I'm 63. I don't care. It doesn't matter. But what I am saying that a lot of us, because of shame, hide the underbelly of our lives. Because we're so fearful that what somebody sees, it may disconnect us from them and they may think less of us. So we're going to go there today. Is that okay? I, we have been pastors for 43 years. I'm going to pastor this room because shame has held us captive long enough, yes. even in my own story. A couple of weeks ago, uh, before we went away for six weeks, Dennis and I were going out on a date night. We lived on Capitol Hill for over 20 years. And Dennis had been reading in the, 
the neighborhood listservs that there'd been a lot of carjackings on Capitol Hill. And Dennis said to me, as we're crossing the street, because on Capitol Hill we only had street parking, and I have $4 million in parking tickets, by the way. Uh, but anyways, we're crossing the street, and Dennis says to me, I bought you this pepper spray because I want you to be safe. To which me, I just replied, I don't need the pepper spray done. If anything happens, I'm just going to be like, in the name of Jesus. And, and, <laughs> and Dennis is like, no, I'm telling you, just keep it in your car. But unbeknownst to me, because I'm a driven woman, I'm still walking to get to our car. Dennis has, is showing me how to use the pepper spray. And so I don't know this, but he has pulled the button on the pepper spray to show me how it sprays. But I'm unaware of that. And so I walk into the cloud... Yep, of pepper spray. Now I'm in the middle of the road, sobbing because I can't see my eyes. Has anybody ever been pepper sprayed before? It's like the worst feeling in the world, so I can't open my eyes. And because my husband is the faithful man that he is and he's always protected me, he's running into the street after me to protect me from an oncoming car, and he walks in to the cloud of pepper spray. And now the two of us are in the middle of a Capitol Hill street, blinded, blinded by the pepper spray. Our neighbor walks by, nobody helps us. We are feeling our way back. You know, you look it up, they say, wash your eyes out, whatever. It's still at least six hours later before we're actually able to see. But I wonder how many of us haven't realized that we have sometimes used shame to protect ourselves, but in the process have been blinded to the vulnerability and the depth of relationship that Jesus actually has for us. I can remember the moment when I first felt shame, I was three years old. It was the origin story. I may have felt it before that, but this one marked me. I was three years old. I was all dressed up. We had a landlord. My parents lived on the second floor of an apartment building, and the landlord lived beneath us. And he was a grandfather type, and I didn't have a grandfather clothes, so I just loved this man. And I remember distinctly getting all dressed up because he had invited me downstairs to a tea party. And I had my patent leather shoes on. It was back in the day when you wore roughly dresses. And I had um, socks with lace on it. And my hair was in a bow. And I remember distinctly going down the stairs to his, apart, to his part of the house. But before I continue in my story, I thought it would be great if we could just start talking a little bit more about the origin of shame in the Bible. Pastor Mark incredible message. If you missed it, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it because he laid the foundation. Pastor Irene's story is so powerful and how we oftentimes identify ourselves with shame and don't even realize it. But I think a lot of us in this room perhaps are listening to a narrative of shame that we haven't realized that it was shame. And so in the Bible, we're going to talk about this for just a few minutes. I'm going to speed past it because where I'm going, I don't want to, I don't want to delay where I'm going. Here's my problem. I haven't preached in seven weeks, and my big challenge today is to get this done before lunchtime. And so if you turn with your Bibles, you can look at Genesis 2, 25, or you can look on the screen, or you can look on your phone. But we're going to talk a little bit about the anatomy of shame. So I'm going to start here. Adam and Eve, or Adam and his wife Eve, were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, a little pre-story to this, Pastor Mark touched on this as well, is that God got his hands dirty in the dust, in the dirt of the earth, and he formed man. It was his masterpiece, and it was good. 
And Adam's existed for I don't know how long and God realizes that Adam is lonely, he's alone. And because God himself is a community, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, he didn't want his masterpiece to be alone. So God got his hands dirty again into the ground and he formed the animals. He formed the cattle of the field and the birds of the air. And then he said to Adam, Adam, I want you to go ahead and name these animals. Now that in itself to, that in itself to me is exquisite because I oftentimes cannot remember which child I'm calling to dinner. And that here's Adam, he's naming all of the cattle, all of the animals of the field and all the birds. And I, do you know how many of those there are? Yes, yes. I don't, <laughs> but I know it's a lot. I know there's 52,000 species of trees from the first sermon that we heard on this series, but that's a lot. This man was smart, he was brilliant. But then even after doing all of that, God realizes that Adam's lonely. Now, something that I want you to pay attention today to is this is that naming things was important to God. Because when God created the trees and he created um, the earth and he created the the galaxies and the stars, when God, you know what? God could have actually obliterated darkness, but instead God chose to name it. And not only did he name it, but he put boundaries on it with light. I just wanna speak today to the fact that oftentimes we don't realize it's shame talking to us, but perhaps we need to name shame and expose it with the light. And that's what we're gonna do today. God put bound, naming was important and and Adam had named all these animals and and then when God formed it, there was no shame. Think about this for a minute, no shame. I mean, when God took Adam and made Eve, Adam didn't look at Eve and say, girl, you're a little bit bigger than I thought you were gonna be. Nor did he say, you're hot, I need to go work out for a minute. No, there was no body shame. There was no shame on intelligence. There was no shame. Do you find it fascinating? I mean, the the author intrigued me with this thought, there's no shame. It would be the first emotional state that God mentions about these two masterpieces that he's just created. He could have said they felt no fear, which I'm sure they did. He could have said they felt no insecurity, they felt no anger, they felt nothing, they felt strong, they felt happy, they felt satisfied, they felt content, but no, God used the term, they felt no shame. And I believe that it's not just because it was a prequel to what was about to come with the temptation, but I believe because God knew that throughout history this would be a wrestling this would be the emotion, this would be the, th- the lie that we would wrestle with the most from Genesis to Revelation, even now in our own lives. From the moment you were born to the moment your last breath, you will wrestle with shame. Yeah. Yeah. Because shame is what it is that tries to rob and steal the fullness of what God actually died for us to have. Got really quiet in here, turned to somebody and say, no shame on you. So the scene opens back up, and if you're online, you can go ahead and write that in the comments, no shame on you. The scene opens back up in the story and the entire garden has been given to Adam and Eve. They've been entrusted with all of it. And the enemy comes to Eve and you, we know the story. He, I'm not gonna go into it too much because I have a lot more to preach on, but he, he lies to Eve, basically tells her, you know, you can, all these trees you can eat from, that's great, but you can't eat from this one tree. 
And because Eve is like all of us, she had FOMO and she's like, oh my gosh, I can't eat from that one tree, what? And as the enemy points out this one thing that she can't have, she, she leans into the lie and she eats from the fruit of that tree. Now for me personally, an apple would not be tempting. I am pretty sure it was a coffee bean or chocolate. What do you think? Or tomatoes, because we are Italian and we make tomato sauce and that would be tempting, right Dennis? <laughs> I think one of the, the basic lies that the enemy used in the middle of this was that if God was really good, you see, God doesn't want you to eat from this tree because if you eat from this tree, then you'll be like him. But here's the lie, they already were. They'd been made in the image of God. They were already like God. They didn't need anything else. It was the one thing they weren't supposed to touch. Here's where shame comes in. Shame comes in when we start feeling what, what Brene Brown and other psychologists call scarcity mentality. If only I had a little bit more of this or a little bit more of that. If I, if I was just a little bit smarter, if I was just a little skinnier, if I had only gone to school a little bit more, if I had more patience, I'd be a better, if only I would, because I am not enough in myself. So the MA brings in the lie that she was not enough in herself. Here's what I want you to see this morning, that if we don't see God correctly, we won't see ourselves correctly. And if we feel like God is holding out on us, and God really is not good because if God was really good, we would have everything that we needed right now, right on time. Then we would be okay. Shame comes in and tells you that God maybe is waiting for you to make yourself better before you need his help. Now, in the middle of all this, Adam and Eve eat from the fruit and then they're hiding because shame makes us hide the best parts of us. Scarcity mentality is loud. They're hiding in, in this beautiful jungle that God's created. And in the next scene, they hear God walking in the garden. And the first question in the Bible, God says to Adam and Eve, where are you? Now, how many of you know God hadn't lost them? Right? God wasn't like, darn, where'd they go now? This is so lush. I made too many trees. Where are they? No, God asks us questions, not because he's confused and he's lost us, but sometimes we've lost us. So he says to Adam, where are you? In fact, I think it's fascinating that there are so many questions in the Bible. Jesus asked over 300 questions. Did you know that? Yes, because you come to NCC, you already know all this stuff. You have good teachers. Where are you? God was resetting them. Where are you right now? The second question God asks is, who told you you were naked? First of all, where are you right now? I want you to take an assessment because every GPS has to have a point of origination before you can get to the destination. And the second question is, who, told, who are you listening to that's telling you you're naked? Because I didn't tell you you were naked. Who's telling you you're naked so you have to hide because I never created you. The manufacturer's original design for you is that you have no shame, you don't have to hide, and if you do feel something is out of place, run to me, not away from me. So what is shame? We're gonna talk about it for just one second. Shame actually, and Pastor Marks touched on it, so did Irene this past week, but shame is a thief and a liar. Turn to some, somebody and say shame is a thief. Did you finish it? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. 
So shame is an intense, painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed. It's therefore unworthy of love, belonging, something we've experienced, done, failed to do, makes us unworthy of connection. Shame is a focus on self, and, and it's different than guilt. Guilt says, I've done something bad. Shame says, I am bad. So is there something about me in this room? I don't know where you are, all walks of life. There's stay-at-home moms, homeschooling moms, business executives, um, on Capitol Hill, there's government um, staffers, there's all kinds of people, homeless people, all kinds of people in this room and online. I don't know where your journey is right now, but is there some place in your life that you feel like if something about me, if somebody else found out about it, then I wouldn't be worthy of connection. That's the area I wanna hide. The underpinnings of shame, one more time is this, that I am not blank enough. It's a scarcity mentality. I am not enough. I am just failing. Not, I mean, and actually shame goes beyond then, beyond the point of I failed to I am a failure. No matter how much I try to fix it, I keep failing. So it must be that that is who I am. And that's the narrative that sometimes we can grow up with. Shame makes us hide the parts of us where God is the most present. In fact, the place that Jesus wants to do his most significant work in our lives is often the place we spend the most time trying to hide. Why do we do that? Why do we do that? Turn to somebody and say, why do you do that? So you're not turning to any, you're definitely not turning to your spouse right now, right? <laughs> and how I know this is because the apostle Paul wrote this. For my weakness, in 2 Corinthians 12.10, my weakness becomes a portal for God's strength. So my weakness, the area I want to hide, if I would stop hiding it, would become a portal for the power of God. See, I think while shame is bad and it's the worst narrative and we want to shut it down and we need to do all that, I believe that shame was never meant to be an intimidator but an indicator. Let me say that again to this side of the room. I think shame was meant to be an indicator, not an intimidator. So when I start feeling shame, if I could take a minute to think about what is shame trying to hide on the other side of that shame, there's something that the enemy, that there's a lie attached to it because if I actually saw what was on the other side of that shame, it would create a vulnerability and a depth in my relationship with God and with others that would allow me to walk in wholeness that I can't do as long as I'm hiding. For my weakness becomes a portal for God's strength. So here's what I believe. I think that in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, while they were made in the image of God, still had a need. Because if they didn't have a need, why would they need God? So when you start seeing your scarcity, scarcity is never meant to drive you away from God, to hide those areas. It's meant to drive you to God because the source of filling that place of scarcity is only God. Shame robs a vulnerable relationship with God and others, steals our identity. And what I want to talk about today is it blinds us to our purpose. It shuts down our purpose. The shame narrative, as I said before, is throughout the scriptures. In fact, how about Moses? 
Moses killed somebody. He was a murderer. And then he goes hiding in the wilderness for 40 years until God ignites the ordinary and he sees a bush on fire and God calls him out of the bush and lets him know about his calling. Moses had a speech impediment. He had a million things to hide his potential, but he stepped into his potential. How about Abraham? He had the shame of no son. Shame of no son. So he works it out in his own understanding by having a son with his wife's handmaid. But what happens in the middle of that? Then God actually moves beyond that and he now becomes the father of many nations. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, David, who was the heart after God, abused his power and cried out to God by having an affair with one of his soldiers, wives that he saw when he was supposed to be at war himself. He, he sinned, right? But then David cries out to God. He says, create in me a clean heart, renew a right spirit within me. David is still in the lineage of Jesus and talk about the lineage of Jesus. Every name mentioned in the book of Matthew that we all skip over. You know, when you have to read through the Bible, you skip over that first chapter. Like that doesn't make any sense, right? Why did you put that in there? That's just boring. Because every one of those names has a shame story. So in Jesus's lineage, there was no shame in him to mention. Rahab was a prostitute and she's in the lineage of Jesus. I'm telling you what, your shame story wants to disqualify you from the purpose and the calling of God on your life. At the end of the day, it wants to shut down your relationship with God, your relationship with others, and your purpose. How about Rahab, Jonah? How about the woman at the well? She was hiding at noontime. Noontime, she was going to get her water. We all know women went in the morning. She just didn't want to deal with the other women because she'd been married many times and was now living with the man that she was with. But Jesus shows up that well, and he changes her narrative of shame. She becomes the first female evangelist to the nation of Samaria. Talk about a flipping of a narrative when you meet Jesus. How about the woman with the issue of blood? She's hiding because of the shame on her, on her sickness. She's crawling through the crowd. She touches the hem of Jesus. So much shame on her that if people saw her, they would move away from her because of her sickness. And Jesus feels the healing going through him. And he turns around and says, who touched me? Even though she's in shame, Jesus heals her. And his first words to her are not so much you're healed. His first words to her are daughter. Because she had been known as the woman with the issue. Jesus said, you will no longer be known with the woman of the issue who has had shame on her life. You will now be known as daughter. You are now in the family. He flipped the switch on the narrative of shame. Peter denied Jesus three times. And yet later, a few days later, after Jesus rises from the dead, Jesus reinserts the calling on his life and says, feed my sheep. You see, no matter what your failure is, shame wants to come and make you Shut down the purpose of God. But that was never God's intention. God sees beyond the brokenness, beyond the failure, beyond the scarcity, and sees you and the potential in you. See, we, all that list I just mentioned, and even the genealogy for, in Matthew, we would never have picked those people, right? You wouldn't have hired them on your staff. Who would have bought a used car from Peter? Not me. <laughs> or Jacob. I wouldn't have bought a house from him. I, would, I wouldn't have trusted him. So because of their shame story, we wouldn't trust, but God sees beyond the shame. It says that shame is an indicator of a purpose and a calling that the enemy would like to shut down. 
because healing, forgiveness, redemption has no bounds. You could go to the deepest, darkest pit and God still will see you and forgive you. And he doesn't, he doesn't, it's not like he's like, where are you? I can't see you. No, he's like, where are you? Because I'm here for you. One of the best stories is in Matthew 25. In fact, can the keyboards come and play? Shame off you music. Yeah. You know what that is? No pressure. Tell me your name. Joel. You got this, Joel. No pressure. Whenever you're ready. I'm just kidding. Thank you. I think one of the best pictures that illustrates this, and then we're going to get back into my story, is the story of the talents. Do you remember that story in Matthew 25? And this very wealthy man is going to be going away, and so he entrusts to three of his workers a bag of gold, a talent, some translations say. You could even say a gift. And to one he gives, um, it's in Matthew 25, verse 15, to one he gives five bags of gold, to another two bags of gold, to another one bag, each according to his ability. That according to his ability just messed me up for years. I love the story continues because Jesus tells the story that the guy that had the five talents or the biggest amount of gifting, he immediately went and took that gifting and multiplied it. And the guy with the two bags, he immediately went and multiplied it. But the guy with the one bag, he hid it. And why did he hide it? Because he thought the master was harsh and demanding. See, his view of God changed his view of his abilities. And he hid it. I wonder how many of us in this room God has dreams over your life that far exceed even where you could possibly imagine. I wonder how many of us in this room have tried to step out and maybe failed a few times. I wonder how many of us in this room have areas of our life we really don't want anybody to know about because if they knew about it, they wouldn't think as highly of us. I wonder how many of us, you could look at Pastor Mark and Laura, you could look at some of the team, you're like, they're so gifted and talented. I don't even know where to start. And so we hide our talent. We hide our gifting. We hide what we've been given. See, the power of this story is that it wasn't anything that any of these guys had on their own. It's what they had been entrusted with. It's what they had been given by the master. See, shame is a thief. And it's the language of the enemy. In fact, John 10.10 tells us this is so obvious. It says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And I have come that they may have life and have it to, everybody say it with me, to the halfway, no. A quarter of the way, no. To the full. The thief and shame comes to rob us of the full. Makes us satisfied with the smaller amount. And I'm gonna close with this story because I think the prodigal God story is probably one of the most beautiful pictures of shame and the shame narrative being overturned. So in Luke chapter 15, verse two, it tells us that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were surrounding Jesus. And they said this, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. 
Now I want you to picture this scene right now is that I think Jesus was perhaps sitting at a table with all kinds of people, prostitutes. He was sitting at the table with outcasts, like the one with the issue of blood. He was sitting at the table with uh, mothers and their children because women weren't always allowed to sit at the table. He's sitting at the table with businessmen and he was sitting at the table with like Zacchaeus kind of guys, like gang, gangbanger guys, like, you know, big chains, Mercedes around his neck, like the Mercedes, like, right? Is that, am I right? Big gold chains? He had Lamborghinis, which apparently you can't order a Lamborghini if you were trying to till 2024 because they've already ordered them all. Anyways, just a little side note for those of you that were wanting to do that. But that's what that, that these, <laughs> there's my ADD just stepped right in, right up to the table. All these kinds of mixed group of people that nobody else, because who was at your table? was like your calling card, it was who you were. So if you wanted to be more important in the community, you would invite important people to your table. It was your connections, like DC, you know, you're networking and connecting and, and that's what your table looked like. But Jesus didn't care about that. He had people with the biggest shame narratives ever at his table. And then you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees and they're watching this and they're like this, who is this guy? He's got sinners at his table. And so Jesus in response to this begins to tell them three stories. The first one is about a lost sheep. The second one is about a lost coin. And just in case the religious leaders didn't get it, he now starts telling the prodigal what I, what I love this. Tim Keller calls it the prodigal God story because the word prodigal literally means recklessly, wasteful and extravagant. And if anybody was recklessly wasteful and extravagant, it was definitely the, the father in this story. So the younger son comes to the father. This is perfect. You've just shifted to prodigal God's music. Great, doing great. Thanks, Joel. Joel's like, get me out of here. No, just kidding. <laughs> So the younger son comes to the father and he asks for his inheritance. You know, the, inherit, the, the inheritance was broken between the two sons. The older son gets two thirds, the younger son gets one third and the younger son wants his third, which by the way, is basically saying to the father, I wish you were dead. I, I'm not gonna wait for you to die. Just go ahead and give me my money. Now, hugely shaming the father in this story. He was the patriarch of the family, the patriarch of the home and the son takes this money and he goes to Las Vegas. And he's playing all the, the, the crap, t I don't even know what's in Las Vegas. He's playing, he's gambling, he gambles away his money, wild living, he's having the best time of his life, he's drinking, drinking and doing drugs and he like hardly even remembers that time until he uses up all his money, there's a famine in the land and he has nowhere else to go. So he wakes up one morning and he realizes he's in the pig pen, which to everybody sitting at this table, they would know this would be like the most shameful place for the sun to be because to the Jew, the pig, you couldn't eat pigs, you couldn't eat pork, it was like dirty to them. So it would be the ultimate worst place for the son to end up. And he comes to himself one morning and he realized, wait a minute, wait a minute, the servants in my father's house, they eat better than I am, I'm eating like pig food. So he, he gets up and he starts walking towards home. And unbeknownst to the son, the father has been every day waiting for this son to return. He doesn't fill the narrative that a normal patriarch would fill because in that culture, when a son would leave with his inheritance, 
The whole community understanding the patriarch had been shamed, they would do what's called a cutting off ceremony if the son should ever try to come back. And the minute he entered towards the, the community boundaries, the, the whole community would come out and they would get this clay pot and they'd smash the pot and they'd say, you are excommunicated. You can't come back here anymore. You are, there's boundaries. You can't come back here. But the father goes running into the village. Do you know why he went running? Because he wanted to get there before the community got there to cut him off. Also, patriarchs don't run, because in order to run, remember they wore robes back then and they'd have to pull up their robes and, and patriarchs never showed their legs. And they go running into the, he goes running into the town and when the sun comes towards him, the father's standing like this with his arms opened wide. And the son comes falling into his arms, smelling like a pig. I mean, the worst kind of shame. And the father changes the narrative of shame on this young son and embraces him, puts his ring on his finger and his coat on him, says, welcome home, son. Which, by the way, a patriarch standing like this is a picture of a son that would be coming soon on a cross with his arms outstretched for any other prodigal that wants to come home. Well, that was my story. 45 years ago, when I came running into the open arms of Jesus. But the rest of my story was that when I kept going down the stairs to my landlord's house, he abused me. And that was the first moments of shame that I ever remembered. And what I was told in that moment was you are too beautiful to resist and nobody will ever believe what you say. You don't have a voice. Those two lies attached themselves to the narrative of shame on my life. Beauty became shameful. I began apologizing for everything. I could be in a room, you could spill your milk, and I'd be, oh, I'm so sorry. Well, why am I sorry? I don't care about your milk because <laughs> shame, I had to apologize for everything I did and didn't do. And then what was a truth on my life is that I am beautiful. And what is a truth on my life is that I do have a voice became a little T truth, which was a lie. And I believe the lie more than the truth. Until one day when somebody told me about a Jesus and I was like, ah, I can't come to Jesus, I'm too dirty. And they're like, nothing you've done is too bad that a God in heaven doesn't already love you. He already sees it, don't hide from him, come running to him. And for all of my life, 19 years of my life, I've been running the other way. I'd been in church, but I'd been running the other way. I had a relationship with God, but I didn't feel good enough to really just kind of embrace him. And one day it became apparent to me, my eyes were open and I could see a God who loved me. That was me in this story. Perhaps that was you in this story. Perhaps that's you right now. And we'll give you a minute and we'll pray with you. But perhaps where you are in the story is I wasn't just the younger son. I was also the older brother. You know, when Jesus tells these stories, we're supposed to see ourselves in the story. Well, I was the older brother. So the father now, now he gets the fatted calf and you, there's a big celebration. He invites the whole village who was going to cut the son off. He's like, come on into this. Come on, we're having a party. And when the older brother hears about this, the older brother is irate and he won't even go into the party. And you know, Jesus is speaking to the religious at this point, but the older brother's just so angry right now. And the father comes up to the older brother outside of the party and he says to him, what's happening? The older brother says, you never threw a party like this for me. 
You never, you never slayed the fattened calf for me. And I've been over here slaving all this time. I didn't, I wasn't the one who ran away with the inheritance. I've been faithful. And the father says to the solar son, wait a minute. I've already entrusted you with the fattened calf. I've already entrusted you with everything you needed to throw a party. You had everything. In fact, every tree in the garden was already yours. Why are you looking at the one thing that makes you feel like you're missing out when you've already been entrusted with gifts and strengths and you've got everything that you need? Stop looking at scarcity mentality. Shame approaches both boys and the father approaches both boys with open arms. Stop letting the little T truth, the lie, the narrative that you've been listening to of shame. Perhaps you're a mom and you yelled at your kids on the way to church today and you're like, oh, if anybody, I remember yelling at all four of our kids when they were little and then being so afraid that somebody from church would see me. Maybe on the way to church, you had an argument or last week you had an argument with your spouse and you really didn't like them anymore. You're like, I don't like you anymore, but I'm, I'm in it to win it. <laughs> or maybe, maybe you didn't like the way your boss treated you or you got angry at somebody or like my issues are like control and I, I'm, a, I'm a recovering control shriek. Uh, shriek. <laughs> recovering control freak. Anybody else? Nobody? I can't see, the lights are too bright, yeah. Some days I'm more recovered than others. Whatever it is in your life today that shame might be trying to hide, I want to speak to you today. Shame off you. I think just like God named the darkness in the book of Genesis, we have to name the shame and the lie that's been speaking to us and telling us to be silent and to hide. I think what we have to do is allow the light of God to shine on those areas where shame has been speaking. The Bible tells us in Psalms that his word is a light to my path. I'm telling you, in my own life, what has silenced the shame of the little T lie is getting into the word of God and discovering that I have a good God that loves me and has redeemed me. And even when I fail, he has not left me. And, and my salvation isn't that fragile where I can lose my salvation. He loves you. Even if you're like in a state of reconstruction or deconstruction, God has not left you. He's with you right now in this space. 